0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: UC Riverside, here at the base of the Box Springs Mountains in Southern California, at one time was the secret jewel of the UC system. Well, not anymore. Everything about this place is up, up, up. Enrollments, applications, attention for its research, and for many who live in this inland region, the quality of life. Later on, we'll take you to UCR's arts block in downtown Riverside, and we'll also introduce you to Aquia Asa Awuku, part of the UCR research team that is clearing the air in the Los Angeles basin. But first, the Peace Corps is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and no college system in the country has sent more of its graduates to volunteer than the University of California. And of the ten UCs, Berkeley is at the top as we hear now from Roxanne Makasjan.
2: I'm currently a senior at UC Berkeley in my last semester, so I have to make it my best semester ever. And I'm studying philosophy, which I love very, very, very much.
3: When she's not doing her schoolwork, Mimi Saunders can be found interning at the Peace Corps office in Oakland. As soon as she graduates, she hopes to take the next step, serving as a volunteer
2: overseas. I feel like it's my duty, almost my moral obligation, to understand different cultures that are not my own. The feeling of
3: duty has always been the lifeblood of the Peace Corps, which marks its 50th anniversary in 2011.
0: I have today signed an executive order... Providing for the establishment of a Peace Corps.
3: John F. Kennedy launched the Peace Corps as one of his first major acts as president. Since then, nearly 200,000 Americans have joined the ranks, serving for two years in 139 different countries. Most applied while still in college, and UC Berkeley was no exception. But
4: we have no time to lose.
3: Kennedy's 1962 speech at Memorial Stadium inspired many to answer his call to service, helping give the university a singular distinction in Peace Corps history. More than 3,400 graduates have volunteered in more than 120 countries, doing everything from teaching and farming to helping prevent AIDS and restoring the environment. One of the earliest volunteers, Kathleen Vitali, a Berkeley art history major in 1962, was in the audience the day President Kennedy spoke. I was more a uh,
5: traveler before that. After, after Kennedy challenged us, it was more, what what could we do to make a better world?
3: Not... How many places could you see? The Peace Corps assigned Kathleen and her husband Paul, a Berkeley graduate and city planner, to Ecuador. That's Kathleen long taught long art long history. history. Paul He's trained people how to build their own housing. That led to 30 years of public service for the U.S. Agency for International Development. The Vitalis raised three children, two of whom they adopted in Ecuador, and they've established a nonprofit film company called Endangered Threads, documenting the craft of Mayan weaving
5: we learned a lot we learned a language we learned a history we learned how other people view the united states which was very eye-opening not everybody loves us well but some of the people do we went back uh 10, ten years later with our children to the uh, self-help housing project and i got out of a car and from A block down, I heard the scream, Senora Catalina, you came back in Spanish. And these little kids, no longer little kids, they were teenagers, they came running and surrounded us and dragged us into their homes to show us how they had improved and gone up three levels in their houses and they had sewer lights, electricity, schools in the neighborhood, all the things that we had helped them try to figure
3: out how to demand from their government. That kind of political action had been something foreign to Peter Ross before he came to Berkeley from MIT in 1961.
5: I think at MIT I never even read a newspaper. My two years here at Berkeley got me very interested in the world and other places.
3: Ross was off to India in 1963, teaching math and science to high school students. He encouraged students to ask questions, established an after-school study center, and learned to improvise when filling in for absent teachers.
5: Not a single student could find where the capital New Delhi was. So I would make an impromptu geography lesson and make it fun, and, and speaking in English. So I essentially never had free periods the whole rest of the year, which was fine.
3: The Peace Corps led Ross to get his PhD in math and science education and become a teacher and it spurred a lifelong devotion to volunteer work. He's done 12 environmental service trips with the Sierra Club and volunteers every Saturday at a hospital guest house for families of children with cancer.
0: Everything is now brought together.
3: The experience of attending UC Berkeley still seems to lead many students into international public service, like Christine Russell, a 2009 graduate in history who's now volunteering in the Dominican Republic. We reached her through the Internet.
6: Berkeley is so diverse, and all of the students are so educated in current events and interested in what's going on in the world. So I think just that atmosphere really shaped my college experience and the way that I ended up doing Peace Corps.
3: Russell helps local residents prevent cholera, create household budgets, and she also helps companies develop business plans. She says the work has got her thinking about international development as a career.
2: This is the first job I've ever had where every single day I get to help people have their dreams.
3: Sue Gershenson, Berkeley class of 68,
2: recruits volunteers for the Peace Corps. What strikes me about Cal students is that they have almost a lifetime of social engagement, both before even their university experience and certainly in terms of extracurricular activities and academically.
3: It wasn't until she was 53 years old after a career in law that Gershenson decided to join the Peace Corps. She worked in Nepal, and one of her jobs was helping a female-run law firm conduct a study on human trafficking. She says the intensive three-month training and the two-year commitment is not for everyone.
2: I say to people that... Um, Peace Corps isn't everybody's cup of yak milk,
3: you know. All of these Berkeley graduates seem to have a unique bond with the Peace Corps, a bond that endures time and bridges generations.
2: The Peace Corps doesn't seem like an old-fashioned thing to me at all. It seems like it's very current, forward, which is very exciting.
5: It's staggering to see the poverty that still exists. So there's a role for Peace Corps. Also, the the role for Peace Corps is to get more Americans to appreciate their good luck, their fortune, and what a lot of people in the world suffer.
3: From UC Berkeley, this is Roxanne
1: Makascian. It was plant scientists here in Riverside who first made the link between smog and the crops that were dying on nearby farms. The botanists later joined with chemists and engineers to become international leaders in air quality research, doing much of their work here at CCERT, home to the world's largest indoor atmospheric chamber. Jim Brown reminds those of us who grew up in Southern California just how bad it was and shows the progress we've made in reducing air pollution thanks in great part to UCR.
7: Explorer Juan Cabrillo dubbed it the Bay of Smokes in 1542. Air pollution has been a part of life in Los Angeles since the beginning. At the eastern end of the L.A. basin, Riverside often felt the brunt of L.A. smog. And researchers at UC Riverside were among the first to study its chemistry, its effects, and to begin the search for solutions. By the 1970s, smog in the basin had reached crisis proportions, and regional leadership was forced to respond. Fortunately, UCR researchers had solid scientific models for pathbreaking regulations and new technologies that would turn an intractable problem into a remarkable success story at the interface of science and society. Your eyes used to hurt a lot. The
5: Los Angeles area for a long time
7: had the worst air quality in the United States. Bill Carter, one of the founding faculty at UCR's Center for Environmental Research and Technology, was instrumental in creating the scientific models behind those regulations that banished those bad old days forever.
5: The air pollution that you can see is the particulate matter, which is the ugly brown stuff that means you can't see the mountains. and most of the time you couldn't see the mountains unless it had just rained or something like that. So uh, days like this where it's uh, fairly clear were very unusual.
7: And uh, So the situation has definitely gone a lot
5: better over the years.
7: Such models are built on basic research in atmospheric chemistry by people like UCR's Paul Zeman.
8: Organic chemicals are emitted to the atmosphere from many different sources. Some of the major ones are vehicles and plant emissions, vegetation. And, uh, but when these chemicals get into the atmosphere, they undergo reactions which lead to the formation of new products. Um, at the Air Pollution Research Center, we're interested in, in understanding this chemistry, and so we carry out uh, reactions under simulated atmospheric
7: conditions in chambers like the one you see behind me. Aquia Asawuku builds on such research to further understand pollution's role in global climate
1: change. So what we know about aerosols or atmospheric particles is that they can have adverse effects on health and our air quality. But in addition to that, they can affect climate. And so the research I do here at UCR looks at how aerosols or particles act as seeds for cloud formation.
7: A new frontier is that of diesel exhaust, and a decade of pioneering research has recently led to the first regulations on truck emissions. c Kent Johnson leads the effort.
9: One of the exciting things that's happened just this year is emission regulations for the diesel industry has just started where they're requiring catalytic controls just like they have on the gasoline vehicle, like your own personal vehicle. And one of the important things with that new technology of all those catalysts is we need to be able to monitor that in use. And this tool behind me, this mobile emissions laboratory, is is one of those such tools.
7: Matt Barth, director of UCR's Center for Environmental Research and Technology, takes the long view.
5: So we really need to establish a better understanding about how traffic congestion forms and what the emissions are coming out the tailpipes. We're working on many different types of solutions for this, including different types of operational improvements, better technology on the vehicles, and we have many different kinds of models that can predict what the future will hold for us say in 10, 15, 100 years from now in terms of how we get around. Uh, I would expect probably in around 50 years or so we're going to have automated vehicles, we're doing research on this now, that allow us to get around without having this congestion effect that we see here in the background.
7: For Bill Carter, an expert on ozone, the regulatory successes of the past are no reason for complacency.
5: It's still a problem, and we're still not meeting the standards, but we're a lot closer to the standards now than we were then. And so the situation is, uh, is definitely improved, but it's not uh,
7: good enough. But for Akua Asa'awuku, the synergy at UCR makes the effort worthwhile.
1: At UCR, we have a lot of faculty, scientists, researchers, students working on uh, different facets of this problem. And utilizing all that knowledge uh, to solve this problem is why UCR is such a great place to do research.
7: This is Jim Brown, reporting from the University of California, Riverside.
1: Back here on the main campus, this is the Biological Sciences Plaza, And up these stairs here is the Genomics Building. Our next two stories present two angles of biological research, one that leads to treatments for humans and animals, and the other to a greater understanding of our history. We'll start at UC Davis with Paul Fotenhauer.
0: Californians have invested $3 billion over 10 years in stem cell research. The challenge is for engineers, scientists, and physicians to work together creatively to make sure that investment pays off. (laughs) There is little argument among scientists that someday stem cells will change the course of treatment in both animals and humans. Stem cells may hold the promise of hope for millions of people living with diseases. Our bodies contain more than 200 different types of cells that make the blood, brain, heart, bone, and other tissues. Stem cells are special in that they have a unique capacity to develop into any cell type. Researchers are now harnessing the power of these cells to heal. This approach has created a new field called regenerative medicine. It brings together experts in biology, chemistry, engineering and medicine to find better therapies for a wide range of injuries and diseases. UC Davis is at the forefront in
6: creating the magic that makes stem cells work. Some of the biggest challenges relate to cells getting enough nutrients, getting enough oxygen, getting enough food and also telling these cells what to do when they're put in the body. So many cells die right away upon transplantation, and so we're trying to develop materials-based approaches such that clinicians can deliver um, cells effectively and keep them alive and tell them what to do.
0: Leach is a leading biomedical engineer in developing the hydrogel, or biological material, that enables cells to stay together. The material is referred to as a scaffold or a matrix used in tissue engineering. It's like a fishnet that traps cells in one location.
6: For example, if you want to create bone tissue, it's beneficial to have a very stiff biomaterial. If you want to create a soft tissue or new blood vessels, that material has to be fragile enough that cells can move around and remodel this material. And so that's how we design our hydrogels. Mixing stem
0: cells with a hydrogel keeps the all-important cells at the treatment site. UC Davis Stem Cell Program Director Jan Nolta is overseeing a 100,000 square foot laboratory at the UC Davis Health System in Sacramento.
2: We have an amazing team of bioengineers here and they uh, work together, there are a lot of them, and they're working on developing just the perfect um, hydrogel and scaffold to deliver stem cells. Um, into the eye, into cartilage, into bone, into the heart. In the
0: last decade, researchers have been harvesting stem cells from fat and from bone marrow for tissue repair.
2: With adult stem cells, we don't have the ethical issues that you would find with the embryonic stem cells. So these adult stem cells come either from the patient's own bone marrow or fat, and they're just moved to a different site, or they can actually come from an unrelated donor.
0: UC Davis is combining its expertise in human and animal medicine to apply this new science to injuries in horses. Larry Galupo is a horse surgeon who has seen promising results using stem cells to repair soft and hard tissue injuries.
10: This is a, an x-ray of the fetlock joint of a horse uh, and this is basically one of the most important joints in the horse's limbs and we have a fracture of the small sesmoid bone here and that basically is a, can be a career-ending injury.
0: Traditional methods of fixing this break would be to use surgical screws to hold the joint together, which is marginally effective. More studies will be needed, but after injecting stem cells, Galupo is pleased. I'm very
10: impressed. And, a, and an injury that usually doesn't heal, it healed. And that's without any other support or anything, just injecting, injecting the cells in the matrix allowed this fracture to heal, which usually doesn't happen.
0: Lost Trail Ranch in Ione, California has been working with UC Davis on testing whether stem cell treatment is effective on broken bones, torn ligaments, and tendons in their performance horses. This ranch is now routinely storing stem cells from umbilical cords of all newborn foals in case they are injured. In this young quarter horse, a pocket of missing bone from the main weight-bearing bone in the knee joint was the cause of lameness. Veterinarians implant the horse's own stem cells and the scaffolding material into the injured area.
6: Okay, this is obviously the needle going into the uh, bone defect up inside, underneath the cartilage, d- deep into the bone, where we injected through that needle, we filled this cyst
10: with the stem cells. The thing with the scaffolding, the most, I think the most um, important thing is that it provides the environment for the cells to be healthy. Then the cells call in all the other factors. So They call in other cells, they call in blood vessels, and then that helps to heal. I think getting the blood supply to the area is the most important, and that's what those cells can do. If you don't use the scaffolding, oftentimes
0: they just leave. UC Davis orthopedic surgeon Mark Lee says the limiting factor in using stem cell therapy more broadly in animals and humans is the cell carrier mechanism. How are we going to provide or carry the cells to the area that we want, bone, cartilage, disc, and keep them there and sustain them and even protect them? Um, Currently, we don't have great carrier technology in humans. In humans, regenerative medicine involves harvesting cells from the patient in the operating room from either fat or bone marrow cells, and then concentrating them by using specialized processing equipment. The cells are then reinfused at the injury site, often by using some type of carrier or matrix to keep them in place. It's not a, a smart scaffold. It doesn't add anything in specific in, to the bone healing process.
6: And then we act, we're going to use a couple different carrier technology, which still for us is a little bit primitive.
0: So this is what we would call a composite graft because it has the cellular elements, some structural elements, and particularly potentially some protein
6: elements here, but also some, some potential cell binding elements here.
0: That is why Leach is focusing his engineering efforts on creating the perfect biomaterial in which cells can grow into new bone or soft tissue.
6: And what you can see here is that there's big differences in the uh, fiber properties within these hydrogels. And by controlling these fiber properties, it allows us to make a specific tissue. For example, this uh, hydrogel is particularly good for bone and you can appreciate a very significant difference between the density of fibers and the diameter of the fibers within this material.
0: Human clinical trials are underway to assess the value of delivering stem cells by way of hydrogel scaffolding to injured sites in humans.
2: What we want to do is to add these novel injectable scaffolds and matrices that our bioengineering team is developing along with that. And so these need to go through FDA approval.
0: The challenge remaining is to find out what is the best scaffolding gel to put into a fracture, a tendon, or an organ. Northern California's largest academic stem cell manufacturing lab is part of the $62 million regenerative medicine facility at UC Davis. It is now working with research scientists from all over California. The Good Manufacturing Practice Facility contains six specially designed clean rooms that enable researchers to safely process cellular and gene therapies for clinical trials.
10: We're using
0: mesenchymal stem cells which are actually
10: in the fat and we take these mesenchymal stem cells for other procedures, expand them, make lots of them, and then we can use them to heal other things.
0: As this technology proves itself, stem cell manufacturing will be big business. Paul Fotenauer reporting from the UC Davis Health System campus in Sacramento.
1: And now to UC Santa Cruz, where Guy Lanier finds that because of interbreeding thousands of years ago, inside most of us is a little bit of Neanderthal.
8: The discovery last year that Neanderthals and humans interbred shook up the field of anthropology and prompted headlines around the world. A key figure behind that discovery is Professor Ed Green, a bioinformatics expert at the Baskin School of Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. Green coordinated the Neanderthal Genome Project while at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany.
9: The Neanderthal Genome Project is... um, Uh, a remarkable resource for understanding not only the history of our species and how we interacted with them but also understanding the important biological changes that have happened since we diverged from Neanderthals.
4: I view Ed Green's project to sequence the Neanderthal and analyze it in comparison with the human genome as one of the greatest scientific projects of our time. This is really a project about origins. This is a project about understanding who we are and how we came to be.
9: The genome is all of the DNA that's passed on from one generation to the next. All of the genetic information that you get from your mother and your father. One of the purposes of a genome project is to get a comprehensive list of all the genes. The genome contains the genes in some linear order. The genes themselves carry out all of the functions that you have to have carried out in order to be alive.
8: At UC Santa Cruz, Green is affiliated with one of the world's leading centers for genomic research, the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering. Professor David Hausler leads a group that assembled the first working draft of the human genome sequence and created the UCSC Genome Browser.
4: If you just go to genome.ucsc.edu on the internet You'll find uh, the browser and you can select the Neanderthal genome analysis, as I've done here. And you can see the cave in which they recovered the bones. Here's a picture of the bones and a reconstruction of what a Neanderthal looked like. But contained within this are all of the DNA sequences that were obtained from the Neanderthal specimen. And they're matched to the human genome so that you can see the corresponding segments of the human genome And then we can start to explore what the differences between Neanderthal and human may mean. Data collection starts by getting a bone that has DNA
9: in it. What happens is the bone is taken into a clean room. And in the clean room, you drill a small bit of this bone with a dentist drill to pulverize it and make uh, bone powder. Then we take a solution that will dissolve DNA and do a DNA purification from this bone powder, and hopefully there's DNA in there that can be sequenced, go into a sequence library and go on a machine. This is uh, really where I come in after all of those things have been done in the lab and in the um, sequencing facility, looking at these DNA sequences, which are just strings of A, C, G, and T, and try to make some biological sense of this. We are here in the sequencing center at UC Santa Cruz, and um, there are lots of sequencing machines in this room, and they're all chugging away on samples, spitting out DNA sequence data. And the sequencing facility here, run by Nader Poorman, is uh, really cutting edge in terms of not only having the the, um, latest technology for us to generate data, but also in exploring new kinds of technology and new ways to make libraries and new ways to generate data that are useful for
8: genome assembly. In December 2010, Green and the same team published a second groundbreaking study based on ancient DNA. This time they discovered a previously unknown group of human relatives called Denisovans, who lived in Asia 30,000 years ago. What we have done is generate um, complete genome sequence
9: from DNA extracted from a small tip of a finger bone that came out of a cave in Altai Mountains in Siberia. And what we've learned from this is that this finger bone belonged to a member of a population that's distinct from the Neanderthals who were around at that time and distinct from modern humans. It's a terribly exciting project. Like all scientists, there's the thrill of discovery that um, moment between when you didn't know something and you do know something and you're the only one who knows it. And, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, and you can, you know, hopefully try to figure that out. But being right there on the cutting edge for something that other people will care about and, and you get to see it
8: first. Ed Green's cutting-edge research sequencing the Neanderthal genome earned him the Newcome Cleveland Prize for the top paper published in the journal Science in 2010. Reporting from UC Santa Cruz, this is Guy Lanier.
1: We close now with a tour of the UCR Arts Block in downtown Riverside. Jennifer Frias is our guide. This is the Culver Center of the Arts, and it is part of the University of California, Riverside. It used to be an old department store, Rouse department store built in the 1900s, late 1900s. And what we do present here are large scale art installations, educational programs and live performances such as theater, music and dance. Next door to the Culver Center of the Arts is UCR's California Museum of Photography, which is where we end tonight. I'd like to thank our Highlander friends here at UC Riverside for helping us with this program and you for your support of the University of California. I'm Shannon Bradley. We'll see you next time on State of Minds.